As we continue reading Psalm 51, we see how David received, has received God's forgiveness, he's received God's mercy. And his response is one of great joy. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. He says, open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. Well, if you've been coming on Sunday evenings, um, you'll know what we're doing at the moment is going through a sort of series on um, uh, reading the Bible, reading it with greater confidence, looking at different types of writing from the Bible and seeing how we can get more out of it as we read it on our own and uh, as we look at things that we can do um, in the process. Uh, We've said it's um, in some ways like um, going behind the scenes of seeing how, as preachers, we prepare a passage um, before presenting the, the finished article to uh, the congregation. There are different ways of reading passage, different things to look out for, depending on the style, and the, that's why we've taken these four different types of writing as examples. And we've said that within each of those different genres, you can also find different types of writing as well. So in the Psalms, although it's mostly poetry, you still find wisdom, you can still find prophecy. Well, this evening we're looking at um, the gospel narrative. In some ways, this is the easiest. Um, in some ways, it's actually the hardest. Because it's easy just to read it as a story. You can read through it. You can understand what's going on. But it's very easy to miss the detail in the text. Miss what it's telling us about Jesus. And miss what it's telling us about ourselves. So before we look at this um, specific um, passage from, from Mark 1, um, let's just... Um, go over a bit of basic information about the Gospels. Just remind us um, why they're there, what their purpose is, what they're trying uh, to achieve. And they are all um, basically accounts of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, and include obviously also his his teaching. Um, That means they include history. There are records of actual events that took place in Jesus' life at a particular moment in history. Um, But they're not just history, Um, they're also theology. Um, They're designed to summon us to faith in Jesus. It's not just telling us what he did, it's designed to provoke a response in us. Um, They're literature, they're told in a graphic way. They're told by different human authors um, for different audiences. They also have a different emphasis. There are four Gospels, as we know, they each have a different emphasis. Um, So Matthew, for example, was a Jewish tax collector. Um, He primarily was convincing Jews that Jesus was the fulfillment of the the Old Testament. And so for that reason, it starts with Jesus' genealogy. There are lots of Old Testament references in there. Um, There's an emphasis, as it says here, on Jesus as king and teacher. He rules by his word. Then there's Mark, who we're going to look at in a minute, companion of Peter. Um, Peter himself, obviously an eyewitness, um, who looks at who was Jesus, why did he come, what does it mean to to follow him? It's a story of the disciples, their gradual realisation about who he was and how they then follow him as their Lord. And it's a very simple um, style of literature. And we have Luke, a Gentile, a friend of Paul. Um, here we see the universal scope of Jesus' work. There are two parts, the, the Gospel of Luke, um, which is the content of the Gospel, and then we have, as we're looking at in Sunday morning's Acts, the spread of the Gospel. He stresses the humanity of Christ, um, his love for outcasts, his, the details of his childhood in there, and 
a focus on Jesus as saviour. And then finally we have John, different from the other three gospels, and John the beloved disciple, a focus on the deity of Christ, his relationship with the Father. And it is a book of signs that are designed to, to lead people to, to faith in Christ. It includes the seven signs, includes the seven I am statements. We're going to have a look at Mark this evening, just a couple of words about the structure of Mark, um, different ways you could try and work out how it's structured, but this is a fairly um, standard one, the first eight chapters, preaching the kingdom of God. Uh, it's the arrival of the kingdom of God as Jesus starts his ministry. We have chapters 9 and 10, which are looking at the cost of the kingdom of God as people realize who he is and think about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And then finally, how does the kingdom brought in? It's through Jesus' death and his resurrection. And in the process of all that, um, uh, we reach a climax as the centurion sees Jesus on the cross, he sees the impact, and he says, surely this man was the son of God. So let's come on to Mark 1. If you've got your Bibles handy, do please turn to them. And uh, first thing to do with any gospel passage, um, particularly gospel uh, passages as opposed to other types of writing, is to look at the context. Particularly if it's a small passage like this, what is going on around it? What has just taken place? What is about to take place? And this passage here is right at the beginning of Mark's gospel. Jesus is starting his ministry. He's been baptized. He's been tested in the wilderness. And if you look at verse 14 of chapter 1, it says, um, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. He calls his first disciples, and the first thing they do is go to Capernaum, where he goes into the synagogue to teach. And people immediately recognize that this is somebody teaching with a natural authority, not uh, as teachers of the law. The demons um, recognize who he is, and so he drives them out and commands them to be quiet. And in verse 27, we're told the people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? And you teaching him with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. And news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. They go to Simon and Andrew's house, uh, where, they, where he heals Simon's mother-in-law, at which point word um, gets around and the whole town turns up at, uh, at the door with all their different uh, uh, ailments. So Jesus gets up early in the morning to go off and pray. Disciples come looking for him, and when they find him, they say, everyone is looking for you. In other words, what are you doing here? Come back, they need you. To which Jesus replies, let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so that I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So we travel throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. So his main purpose in coming is to proclaim the good news of salvation about the kingdom of God. But in the process of so doing, he will come across needy people. Those who are suffering as a result of living in a broken world. And his response is to help them. He cannot do otherwise. But recognizing at the same time, if that is all he did, he wouldn't have time to proclaim the good news. So if we look at the passage itself, what type of writing is it? Well, it's basically a miracle narrative. 
It's a factual, historical narrative. It's a unique instance um, in the history of God's power at work. But its purpose is theological. Its purpose is to teach us who Jesus is and to give us proof of his divine identity. Now, the first thing I think to look at as we read the passage is who is doing and saying what? So, um, so we're told a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then we have Jesus' response. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. And we're given the result of the action. Immediately the, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. We then have a, a sort of reversal of the order, and so it, Jesus initiates the next action. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Which leads to response by the man, which goes completely against what Jesus asked. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely spreading the news to which we have another result as a result Jesus could no longer enter a town openly but stayed outside in lonely places yet the people still came to him from everywhere so that's the flow of the the action and the speech but let's go back and look at it in more detail and the first thing that should strike us is that this man who approached Jesus had leprosy which the footnotes tell us was a general term for various skin diseases. But those who had it were segregated from the rest of society. It was a contagious disease, it was a degenerative disease, and usually um, terminal. Lepers were outcasts. And if you've ever seen the film um, Ben-Hur, you'll get some idea of just how tough life would be for a leper and those separated from them. Uh, you may recall that scene as um, Judah Ben-Hur discovers that his mother and sister aren't dead as he thought, but they're living in a leper colony. And they don't want him to, to know that that is where they are and that is what they are like. So this was a man with leprosy and he had the audacity to approach Jesus. But what we also see, this is an act of sheer desperation because he falls to his knees, he begs him. There's nothing he can offer Jesus to heal him. As a leper, he's no money to offer. There's nothing he can say to persuade Jesus about the merits of his particular case. But he utters these words. He says, if, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And there are two parts to this, um, to this request, this plea, aren't there? He's saying, I know you can make me clean. I know you have the power to make me clean. But it all depends on whether you are willing. But what was Jesus' response to that? The first thing we see is his emotional response. We're told Jesus was indignant. Now that's an interesting word, isn't it? It's not the sort of response you necessarily um, expect. And it's also worth noting that the, um, uh, the footnote indicates, and your own translation may have, he was filled with compassion. Quite different um, uh, responses. And just a word on that. If there are 
contradictions between original manuscripts, scholars often use a number of tools to decide which was the most likely. Um, uh, that can be which was the earliest, which um, usage occurs most frequently, but also ironically, which is the least likely. The thinking being, if you were a scribe copying a manuscript and uh, you thought something must be wrong, you're more likely to correct it by inserting a word which you think is a better fit and more natural fit for us as humans than one which doesn't fit so well. So, for example, to say Jesus was filled with compassion would be more of a, a natural response we'd expect, but we wouldn't expect to see Jesus was indignant. But that begs the question, well, what indignant at what? He couldn't have been indignant at the man. It wasn't exactly his, his fault that he uh, contracted this disease. He wouldn't have been indignant that he approached him because he had pity on people and he could always have chosen not to heal him. So what wasn't Jesus indignant at? Well, the most likely explanation is that he's indignant at the suffering caused by this disease both the physical suffering and the social suffering. He's not just full of compassion, but he's indignant, he's angry at the presence of evil in the world, a world which he created as good, but was broken. Remember Jesus' reaction at the death of Lazarus, um, where we're told Jesus saw Mary weeping, and he was deeply moved and troubled. He was basically outraged, which is what that word means, that death should cause so much suffering. So that is his uh, emotional response. But what about his, um, his physical response? He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Again, very easy to um, just gloss over that, um, to just uh, move on to the next bit. But... Um, Let's just ponder for a moment on what the word clean means, for example. What does it mean to be clean? Why doesn't he just use the word healed? Um, well, it's distinguished between those who have a physical um, condition that are, are not contagious, that can remain in social contact with others, that can come and worship, and those who have illnesses which are incurable have been excluded. In Matthew 10, when Jesus instructs his disciples and sends them out, he says, The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal those who are ill. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you have received. Freely give. So to be unclean is to be a social outcast. It's to be excluded from the community that that gathers to worship God which is almost as serious a problem as the disease itself. And to be made clean um, is to be given one's right to be integrated back into society. It's like the death warrant has been revoked. But for Jesus to actually touch the man first, to reach out and touch him in itself is a huge thing because um, to actually reach out and touch a leper would have run the risk of contagion, but it would also have made him unclean according to, to the Old Testament laws. But the irony here is that the touch of the leper, which should have made Jesus unclean, worked in the opposite direction. Do you see what's going on? Jesus cannot be contaminated by our sickness and sin. He can restore a world that has been affected by sin. 
And he is the only one who can make someone clean. And that is why he says, I am willing. Be clean. And as he does so, he acknowledges the faith of the leper who knew he was able to heal, but would never have said he deserved in any way to be cleaned. In the Greek, the, um, the word be clean, which appears a number of occasions there, um, is basically just one word. And as, uh, as he says it, we're told immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. It's easy to gloss over that word immediately, isn't it? But if you think about leprosy, it's not a, an internal illness, it's an external visible disease which often involves serious disfigurement. And so to say the leprosy left him immediately is to say the visible signs of it disappeared in front of people's eyes. It's a bit like, do you remember the story of the calming of the storm we heard about a couple of weeks ago, which Graham was preaching on? He just said, be still. One word, be still. And immediately, it happened. It was calm. When Jesus says things, they happen. And that should just um, allow us to take a moment as we're reading through this on our own to, to, to be filled with awe at who Jesus is. He has power. He has authority over nature. He has authority over sickness. But of course, as we'll see in the next incident um, recorded in, in Mark's Gospel in chapter 2, he also has the power, he has the authority to forgive sin. Which is why, as I said earlier, it's important to look at the context of a passage, not just what becomes before, but what also comes afterwards. Because this cleansing of sin, this cleansing, sorry, this cleansing of an outward disease prefigures the more important thing that Jesus claimed to do to clean all humankind from their internal disease, their sin, to purify us from all unrighteousness, as we celebrated just now. In the Old Testament, the people um, had to perform various cleaning rituals to, to come before God. But in Christ, our sins are washed away. We're considered pure in his sight. We're well, going back to the passage in Jesus. In verse 43, we're told that um, Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. Another, another little surprise there, really, isn't it? Um, the translation, it doesn't really convey the sense of the strength of this feeling and this action. But it's really almost a get out of here. And again, his emotion is not directed at the, the man who is just cleansed, who is healed but it helps us to understand just how angry he is at the effect of suffering in the world. But there are two instructions to the leper before he goes. He says, see, see that you don't tell this to, to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest. Offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Why would he not want people to know? Why would he? Does that question not come up to your mind as you're reading this? Surely he wants people to know all about him, spread the word. Um, why does he say that? Well, it comes back to the fact that Jesus had a mission. He's proclaiming salvation, salvation to everyone. 
And that will be made possible by his eventual death in Jerusalem. But he doesn't want things now to distract from that mission, to distract from his end goal. And so he's saying, don't tell anyone. The bit about the priest is probably um, for the man's benefit to be allowed back into the community. Um, he has to demonstrate he has been cured. He's been cleansed of his, his leprosy. But then having been given this warning, having been healed, what does he do? He completely ignores him. So it says, instead, he went out and began to talk freely. It's interesting when you compare this back with the previous passage about the demons. Uh, there, Jesus wouldn't let the demons speak when he drove them out. But here, he strongly warned the man not to speak, but he didn't prevent him from speaking, which he could have done if he wanted to. And maybe that just reveals something, what it means of the, the human freedom that God gives us. God wants us to respond in obedience, but he doesn't compel us to. We take responsibility for our actions. And worth just uh, thinking as you read these things, um, uh, where might I have been disobedient? Where I've received an instruction from the Lord, where I know what I should do. Where have I just done things my way? And before we may be too critical of the, uh, the man, maybe we just need to reflect on those things that... Um, we are guilty of not doing when we uh, should have done. Um, for us, it's probably the opposite, isn't it? The man was told, don't go out and tell people. We are told to proclaim the good news about Jesus, and often we lack the courage to do so. But the result at the end is that Jesus no longer could enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. And yet, the people still came to him from everywhere. There's still that sense of popular being drawn to Jesus. This is a character you can't ignore. And as we go into the next chapters, we'll see that rejection from the religious leaders, but a great acceptance from, from the crowd. So as we bring all this together, um, hopefully that's been helpful as we've just gone through it step by step. Hopefully that's helped you as you read another passage. But um, what can we just take away this evening from this short passage? Well, what I've tried to make you see is that instead of skipping over a short story like this and thinking, yeah, Jesus, great, does another healing, um, there is actually a lot more in there, isn't there, if we dig deeper, if we look at the detail, because everything is in there for a reason. Those words are the inspired word of God. They're there for a reason. We just need to pray that God will reveal these things to us. Jesus has compassion on those who are needy, those who acknowledge their need, those who call out to, to him for help. He is a compassionate God. He's indignant at the effect of evil on this, this, this beautiful world that he made. And so he's come to proclaim that the kingdom of God is near. He's come to call people to repent, to believe the good news that salvation is available to all those who would accept him as their saviour and their Lord. He's come to show that he is the Christ. He has power, he has authority to, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cleanse those with leprosy. But also he has the power to cleanse us from our sin. Let's just take a moment to, to reflect on that. And then I'll pray and we'll finish with a, with a final hymn.
Father God, we do thank you that you called ordinary men, ordinary human authors to to write down what uh, happened in Jesus' life, to record all these different incidents. And as we've looked at this uh, little episode uh, this evening of Jesus coming across a leper, Lord, we do pray that we would have taken something more from it than maybe when we've read it previously, that we would have seen something more of Jesus' glory, his loving, compassionate character in which he wouldn't turn someone away whom others would turn their backs on, somebody excluded from society, cast out. We thank you that he included him, he welcomed him, and he dealt with his need. And Lord, we thank you that he's dealt with our biggest need, that we have been cleansed from our sin. Thank you that that is the purpose of his mission, Lord, that he came to to proclaim the good news about salvation in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we do pray that uh, you would fill us with a great um, sense of gratitude for what he's done, the sense of awe at his power, his authority over sin and death. We praise him that because he has that power and authority, because he rose to life, that we stand here this evening and rejoice in it as saved sinners. So Lord, help us to go from here as uh, not just saved sinners, but obedient sinners who have been saved. Obedient followers, obedient disciples of Jesus Christ in all aspects of our lives as we point people to him. In Jesus' name, amen.